it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Stop me if you've heard this one before. The United States is sending $51 billion to the Ukraine and ain't doing shit about the problems here right in America. And this is black folks specifically. We got $51 billion to send to the Ukraine, but we ain't got money for reparations. Even Tupac said, The word of the week, people, is war. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. A lot of folks, black and white, have felt some kind of way about the United States' involvement in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Black people have been triggered by this war because for many of us, it's an example of this country being far more willing to address issues internationally rather than addressing the systemic issues here. Best analogy I can think of is it's like when you loan somebody money and then you see them at the club buying and popping bottles. So black people are basically like, oh, you ain't got that reparations money, but you got that Ukraine money. I get that because the United States, as of the recording of this podcast, has given the Ukraine a staggering $75 billion. Unfortunately, supporting the war in Ukraine is necessary, frustrating though it may be. This is what we have to understand about Vladimir Putin, who is the dictator of Russia, essentially. He hates democracy, and he's essentially the serious version of Dr. Evil. The Russians interfered with the 2016 presidential election. Putin was out here using Donald Trump like he was his bottom bitch because he was. Russia resents the Ukraine for trying to be a true Western democracy. And Russia especially doesn't want a country that borders them to become an ally of America. So here's the thing. The United States is also in NATO, which is essentially the security force of the world, like the Avengers. Actually, let me go further with that analogy. The essence of the Avengers is to protect Earth from threats that would seek to destroy the planet. Hence why they all mobbed up on Thanos, who destroyed half the planet with a snap of his finger. Because while the planet does have fucked up problems, it's the only planet we got. Threatening forces don't stop after they get just a little taste of power. They keep going. As a member of NATO, the United States pledged to follow Article 10 of NATO's founding documents which says that basically we got to go up for any European country out here trying to further enshrine democracy. So when the news broke recently that a group of mercenaries called the Wagner Group stormed across Russia on some Debo shit in an attempt to pull a coup, those feelings surfaced again of why are we here? Why are we wasting this money? What's the point of this? Russia got nukes, y'all. It's that simple. If we miss a step today, we're going to be frying fish tomorrow. That there is infighting occurring in Russia could potentially be very good for the United States. And like it or not, it showed that choosing to support the Ukraine was a brilliant geopolitical move, depending on how this shakes out. Russia poses a global security problem. So even though we see the reality of the problems we're facing here in America, if we don't stay the course with the Ukraine, the shit we want to accomplish here won't matter and it won't get done. Also, I don't know about y'all, but I'd very much like for the United States to do everything possible to prevent a third world war. War, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. 
My guest this week is an exceptional actor who for generations has entertained us by playing a variety of roles in movies we always remember. Movies such as Set It Off, Posse, Something New, Just Cause. And he's also starred in several hit television shows, including L.A. Law, City of Angels, Dirty Sexy Money, and Sex in the City, among others. He's won an Emmy, been nominated twice for a Golden Globe, and he's received 17 NAACP Image Award nominations, winning seven times. He's also won a Grammy for Best Spoken Word as co-narrator of Al Gore's audiobook, An Inconvenient Truth. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Blair Underwood. So, Blair, at the time of recording this podcast, it is actually my mother's birthday today. And when I told her that I was interviewing you, I, I promise you, I don't think that woman was that happy after she gave birth to me. Because <laughs> she's been such a longtime fan of yours. And she was like, oh, and I just, and then she literally mentally ran through your whole IMDb page. And I was just like, oh, man. <laughs> she was like, and I remember he was in this and this, and he was good in that, and blah. And I was like, I mean, I'm your child. I just want to point that out. Like, yeah, Blair's cool and everything, but I'm your daughter. I just wanted to throw that but out. But I'm your child. Yes. <laughs> what is your mother's first name? My mother's first name is Denise. <laughs> Denise, would you please, please tell Denise I said hello and give her my very best and thank you for that love. Okay, I'm going to clip that off and send that to her and she won't get a gift next year. So thank you <laughs> because of that. But uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you. And I thank you for the making the time. But before we dive deep into your career and just so many things that you've done at an excellent level for a very long time, before we get started into diving deep into that, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that question. I think, and I had that question for you too, by the way, but anyway, I'll give you my answer. <laughs> okay. You got to go first though. I'll give mine. You go first. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I, I got in the game in around 1985 in New York City. My first movie was Crush Crew. I was doing a lot of, you know, just- I may have heard of it. <laughs> may, you may, may have heard of it. But, I, you know, I was new to the game and I had just come out of college. I was in theater school, learning how to sing and dance and act and perform and all that. And and at that time, the whole mantra when you got into the business was you got to get an agent. You have to have an agent. You have to have somebody to help you move forward, which is still true. But around that time was when Spike Lee came into his own. And I saw this young brother writing, directing, producing, starring in his own movies. And it was then, it was early on in my career, I started thinking, you know what? I wasn't using the word unbothered then, but I love it. But it's like, I'm not going to be bothered with... Number one, worrying about other people hiring me, worrying about somebody else giving me validity to say you're good enough, you're talented enough to be hired. I'm going to kind of do it for myself. But it was really the inspiration. The inspiration was really Spike Lee initially to, to be unbothered by the pursuit of the work, but also be unbothered by commentary or people coming at you. Very different world than social media today. But, you know, I learned early on to get that thick skin up and just kind of do your thing. Now, I'm I'm mentally trying to roll that, uh, like go through all the movies that you've done. Have you two ever worked together? I have never worked with Spike. Would love to work okay. with Spike. Never worked. They haven't yeah. called me yet, brother. They haven't called yet. Oh, you know what? I'm going to mention that to him because right now, Spike and I are working on Colin Kaepernick's documentary. He's oh. directing. I'm executive producing. What? And so I will for sure mention that to him. My bad. I wasn't even aware of that, but that's even better. Please, please do. 
Yeah, I will. Now, to answer the question, um, since you were kind of throwing it back on me, the reason I named this podcast Jamel Hill is Unbothered is uh, I started this podcast now, it would be in 2019. And I was just a few months from having left ESPN and all the controversy with the president. And what that whole experience taught me was like, I will never again put myself in a situation where I'm at the mercy of somebody else. And because I think throughout your life and I would love to hear if this is at all relatable for you or if you went through this. But I I think, you know, your percentage of unbothered goes up by age or degrees or experience. Like in my 20s, I was probably like, you know, 30 percent out of fucks. Right. That's where I was in my 20s, Uh, 30s. You know, I was about 45, 50 percent out of fucks. 40s now. It's like mm, it keeps going up. And then finally I reached the stage where I was like. I'm out of fucks. So I'm unbothered (laughs) in this space now. And I wanted the way I approached this podcast and certainly the conversations I had on there to, um, you know, talk about what that feels like. Like it's really just a way of me asking people, when did you really start feeling comfortable in your own skin? Yeah, no, no, I love that. And I, I read an article about you saying, asking, did you start the podcast because of the tweet controversy? And you said, no, I just kind of really missed interviewing people for one. But I love that about you because I love that that sense of intellectual curiosity because I, I have them always. I'm utterly fascinated by people, constantly fascinated by people. And I, I, I think that's pretty obvious in the roles that you've you've chosen to play and, you know, why you've been able to put out such a consistent body of excellent work for a long time. But since you brought it up first, you brought up Crush Groove, which was the first time I recall seeing you on screen. I was like, you're too young for all that. Talking about. I was 10 when it came out, okay? Oh, right. I snuck and saw it, though, okay? Because, <laughs> you know, y'all had, you and Sheila E, you had a little sex scene up right, in there. Right, right. That's like Disney today, stuff folks are doing. Yeah, I, I know, right? It's so innocent now. It's like, oh, so you just saw, like, the curve of an ass. Like, that was right. really obvious. That was it. If you saw that, like, you didn't really see the things that you see now, and not just on movies, but, like, on regular, like, 9 p.m. television, <laughs> you are seeing some pretty bold things. But let's talk about that role. That was your first big break. So how did you land it? What happened? That was really just an audition. You know, I had just come out of college. I graduated. Uh, I had left college. I didn't even graduate because so I couldn't afford to stay. Uh, January of 85. And it was later in that month. I mean, Crush Group came out October 85. So maybe a couple months I'd been in New York and, and I auditioned. And they had already cast another actor at the time. And I don't know. I don't know what happened with that that guy. I knew he was like they said he was like a real pretty boy. And um, you know the irony is it was like a full circle moment because I found out George Jackson and Doug McHenry produced Crush Groove, and and Doug McHenry told me later on he said, "Man, you know you came into audition and we all liked the work and we liked the acting, but we just didn't know like if you had the right look. Like if if the if the if the, if the, if the woman would pay ticket, you know, pay money to come see you in the movie theater. We just didn't know. So they took my picture around." the office and asked the sister said Do, would you watch this brother because we think he looks like it and here's the irony he said because the soldier story that movie about 1944s you know uh, military army and everything a soldier story was out in the theater they said he looks like some soldier story nigga would you go watch him in a movie theater <laughs> <laughs> and i i got love for them because they said yes and that's how i got the part they were the, the final coup de gras they said yeah yeah we'll, we, we'll go watch that brother the irony is all these years later i did soldiers play on broadway and which was a uh, Full circle moment. The other irony is that, to just be totally frank, is like the way that you have been positioned in Hollywood and certainly in our culture is 
your name and fine kind of like are simultaneous because people look at you as you are a very, you know, good looking actor. And that's been part of your appeal for a long time. I appreciate it. As long as Denise keeps looking that way, I'll be happy. Listen, my mom, all I heard is the word stepdaddy. And I was like, I got to go. But like, oh, I like, I, I, this conversation over, ma'am. Oh, <laughs> I was man. like, no, no, we're not going there. Getting back to that moment with, with, with Crush Group or that film in general, had you any idea? Because hip hop at that point is in its infancy. Were there any indications or any feeling that you had like this movie is about to be a real cultural landmark? You know, yes and no. I mean, I say no because you just never know. You can put the work in. You can feel all kinds of good things about whatever you're going to do. But you just never know how the audience is going to respond, if they'll respond at all. Uh, I had a sense of it because it was it was just such an undercurrent of of excitement in New York City, especially I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And, um, you know, just Russell Simmons was like the hottest thing in, in hip hop. Hip hop was seven years old at the time. And uh, I kept hearing that. Would, would, and Russell would talk about that. He said, people said, was hip hop last? Would it last? Well, we're here seven years later. Look at us now. And now what is it now? 30, 40 years later? 50. Try 50 years later. 50 yeah. years. Come on. Come on. 50 years later. So I had a sense of it. And, you know, Prince was Prince. And, you know, Sheila E. was his protege. And Sheila was was hot on the game. All of them. Run DMC, Curtis Blow, the Fat Boys. I mean, shooting that show. I remember we were in Times Square shooting that one song with the Fat Boys in that big Italian restaurant and girls were lined around the block just to see the fat boys. And I said, I'm going to like this industry. <laughs> Did you think maybe I should try to be a rapper? I don't know. <laughs> nah, nah. I, I tried rapping once and run said, nah, bro, just, just stick to the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so um, mid eighties for you, uh, you know, even after doing that film, like how would you describe what the landscape was like for black male actors at that time? Man, you know, um, Denzel was doing his thing on the big screen, mid '80s. You know, even when I first did Crush Groove, it was very rare. It was very rare to see any of us on the big screen. And if if you did see us, you know, it was usually you know we were pimps or or um, or thugs or just you know from the street culture, which is a part of our culture. But that's all that Hollywood wanted to promote and project. So, man, it was very rare. I mean, we weren't that far. I'm talking about the 1980s. It's not that far from when I grew up in the 70s, seeing seeing a brother and sister on, on TV and, and everybody run to the rooms. Hey, somebody, somebody Black's on TV, you know, well, somebody like us is on TV. So it, it, we weren't that far removed from that at all. Well, I'm glad you brought up Denzel because, I, you know, in my mind, I was like, man, I, I kind of feel like um, even though Denzel got started a little bit before you because he's older than you, is that they... Like you guys were sort of coming into your own at the same time. Yeah. Right. And like, did you and Denzel ever go up for any of the same roles? No, Denzel's uh, like 10 years older than me. So, yeah, I mean, he was, in, he was in the game 10 years old and he was more, much more established. He was doing films when I was just, just starting off in the game. Um, always had mad respect, always and still do for the work he's done, the body of work, um, his legacy that he's left uh, imprinted upon all of us. I think one of the things that at least certainly black actresses have told me this is that if, you know, what would always be astounding to them is that regardless of the part, because there wasn't a lot of part for black uh, actresses, not a variety of parts. And I'm sure it was the same way for black men is that they would put all of them in the same bucket. So it'd be like, you know, Angela Bassett, and I Latham, like all of them going out for the same role. And I would love to ask you or I am asking you is like, was it the same for you? Like, were they putting you it didn't matter what the role was. It's like all of y'all, regardless of, 
you know, look, whatever you got, like y'all all, all auditioning for the same thing. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I heard that great interview you did with Sally Richardson. I was listening to it last night. Um, and she talked a great deal about that. If something came down the pike and they wanted a black actor or a black actress, everybody got the call, you know? So it was very rare. You know, for me, I was, I was grateful because I was only in the game six months before Crush Groove happened. And then the next year I got on the show called LA Law where I played a lawyer for seven years. And, you know, listening, you know, so many of my contemporaries and listening to Sally last night, you know, she's, you know, she made the point that she didn't feel as though, you know, she was acting and she was working a lot, had a successful career, but it was always feeling like she was starting over. I, I was fortunate in that I had that, that, that run on LA Law. That was seven years of my life. And it kind of gave me a foothold um, in the industry, in the business, in the television, you know, you mentioned Denzel, well, we mentioned Denzel, you know, and Denzel was really established himself on the big screen. That show and success of LA Law at the time allowed me to kind of get a foothold in the television world. Mm. And then at the same time, we're trying to do other things, you know, features in between, Posse being one, uh, with Sally and Marvin and Peoples back in the day. But uh, yeah, you know, just try to just spin it any way you can, but you take what you got. And you take what the industry at that point would give you, but you'd be unbothered and do it and be independent. Like I learned from uh, Spike Lee from afar and you kind of do your own thing. And I've, I've really kind of tried to take that to heart all these years later and still, you know, creating, you know, your own opportunities. Being unbothered, you understand, Jamel? <laughs> See, you listen. All right. You did. Somebody, everybody out there. I did not pay Blair Underwood any money to say all these wonderful <laughs> things that he is saying. Just gets it. Just gets it. But it, it's it's great that and I'm super humbled that you listened to the podcast with Sally, especially because she told the the posse story about how she got the role. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was supposed to be Stacey Dash and it wound up being her. <laughs> you know, it was interesting because I don't know if many people know that story, but no, no. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had told Mario from the beginning. So I just met. Sally, she'd come from Chicago. I said, man, because the script, it said oh, the one was African-American and Native American. I just met Sally. She did. She had hair back down like that, back to her the smaller back. And I was like, this this is the girl. And for whatever reason, you know, they cast uh, uh, Stacy and it didn't didn't work out. And Mario called me the day before. We're, I'm flying up that next day to start shooting. He said, man, um, who was, who was that actress you told me about? I said, she came in and read. I said, no, that's Sally. So then he called her and then um, and she got the role. But that's those kind of stories are not unusual, as as you know, in this industry, you know, those last minute kind of things. And, um, you know, now as a producer and director, I see how those things happen. You know, so many different variables come into place, not just who's the most talented, about 40, 50 other variables come in at least. It's such a subjective business, as you well know. Um, since you gave me the perfect segue to talk about L.A. Law, um, another show I grew up watching was was that <laughs> i didn't quite understand the world because some of it was like a little too grown for me but i was all in like it did it didn't matter yeah. and i was amazed to learn that you were 23 when that when you got that role that's incredible and obviously as a kid watching you seemed like you know so grown and adult with it like you did not seem like you were a 23 year old it's just like oh young hotshot lawyer la got it you know get the whole gist of it for you what was the significance as a black man to get that kind of role on that show that was very iconic oh man well you know you gotta understand it was uh and, and you know this it was the number one dramatic show on television we were on thursday nights at 10 o'clock the biggest show on television almost in the history of television was the cosby show that came on at eight o'clock on Thursday nights. So that whole run, Cosby Show, I forgot what came. I think it was uh, Michael J. Fox's show. It was a must-see TV. They called it at the time. So I came on at the beginning of their second season. So I knew what I was walking into. I knew this was like a hit show, and I was just trying to find my own my own way in that. But I knew if I got this right, and if I didn't mess this up, if they didn't fire me, 
um, I knew it would be a game changer in my um, in my career and 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 subsequently my life, and it was. So, um, was that an audition situation, or how did how did? Oh yeah, okay. Oh yeah, no, that that was definitely an audition, and they they were getting some heat. Ironically, you mentioned Mario Van Peoples; he did the pilot, I believe, in the very first four episodes of LA Law, the first season. Then that character went away. They had no black characters for the rest of that season, so they were getting some heat, and people were writing letters saying, "No, we're black folks. You know, we're there no black attorneys." So I, I I appreciate that. I always under, I always appreciate the the system of the the the. the uh, sense of activism um, and agitating and making noise because that's how you promote change. And I know I would have been on LA Law had not people in our community said, we want to see somebody who looks like us on that screen. So I kind of knew that was why they were looking for a black actor, but um, I just wanted to make the most of it because at that point you asked about the 80s and this was, this was 86, 87, around that time. You know, it was very rare to see a young, articulate, aggressive black man on television at that time. So uh, I was, you know, I was and I am very honored to have been able to play that role. Yeah, I, uh, and the sitcom I believe you're thinking about was was uh, Family Ties, <laughs> Michael J. Family Parker. Ties, Family Ties. So were you at the time, um, because you're young and you're still trying to establish yourself in the industry, were you aware of the weight of that, that you were representing something bigger than just Jonathan Rollins? I didn't recognize it at the time. It was years later, as I said, I was on the show seven years. And in 94... Nelson Mandela was uh, released from prison in South Africa, and Winnie Mandela had come to the United States, and we were at a party, and, and a group of us artists in, in, in Hollywood, uh, Alfie Woodard, Mary Steen Burgeon, Danny Glover, um, uh, Robert Guillaume, and myself and others started an organization called Artists for New South Africa. Literally, my friend Alfie Woodard said to me, all we got to do is when somebody puts a microphone on your face, you know, promote your project, but also talk about Nelson Mandela, talk about apartheid, keep a focus on that. That was the the impetus of that project. So we were very much involved in South Africa at that time. So Winnie Mandela comes to the United States, there's a party, a backyard party, and I meet her for the first time. And when she saw me, her face just lit up. And she said, every child in my country wants to be you. Now, I was very clear, it wasn't me. But it was the first time that I really understood the breadth and the width and the depth of, of these images that we create and how they can just travel the world, travel the globe, and how they can affect people. Another, you know, another just quick aside was, um, you know, we had one episode in LA Law where my character Jonathan Rollins was going to leave the firm because that firm would not divest in South Africa, and he made a stand. And you know, I'm an actor. I just go to work, learn my lines, go to work, do my thing. You know, what's the next? What's the next episode? Okay, learn those lines, keep going. And when I went to South Africa, it was around 90, 94. I met a man named Jeffrey Redebe, who was in prison with Nelson Mandela on Robben Island. And he said, you know, we had TVs in Robben Island, and we would watch LA Law. It was the number one show in, the, in South Africa. In fact, that trip when I went to South Africa, I had a bodyguard, big, big white guy. His name was Paul. Very cool. But he said, you know, you were one of the most hated people in this country because I had an interracial relationship on LA Law at that point. He said, people want to kill you. They, they want to shut down. The, the station that aired LA Law in South Africa at that time because of that interracial relationship. But anyway, so Jeffrey Rodebe said, you know, when we saw that episode, we knew that the world was watching. It reminded us, they knew, but they reminded us that the world was watching and paying attention. So, so it's a long answer to your question, but it, it's moments like that earlier on in my career when it just really resonated with me that it's so much bigger. The images we play, the, the, the roles we choose, uh, is so much bigger than just what we may want individually as an actor. 
So, um, and, and see, I wasn't going to tell you this because I didn't want to sound corny, but uh, to reiterate what Winnie Mandela said, um, other than journalism, the only career I ever thought about was being a lawyer. And that was because I saw you on L.A. Law. And I was wow. like, oh, shit, black people can be lawyers? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I know what y'all did because you were a corporate attorney. I was like, I don't know what that is. But my man got a nice ass car. He's always dressed to the nines, like all that. I was like, yeah, I want that. <laughs> Is doing his thing, right? But I think for a lot of black people to see us represented like that in a professional space, it was just like a world that like, oh, yeah, we, we do belong here. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to realize the significance of that. Now, beyond just the cultural significance of what it meant to see someone like you on L.A. Law, the personal impact to your specific career, how did that change the trajectory of your career? Ooh, well, you know, it, it elevates you in a sense where people want to hire you which is good. And then to me, it was just about, okay, how do you be selective about what you play? Because my, what I always wanted to do was have, I, I hoped and prayed for was to have longevity in this business. And you're right. I was young. I was out of, right out of college. I was 21, 20, no, 23 when LA law happened. So I was young and I, I knew I'd I heard about so many people who are on successful shows at that time, especially in the seventies and eighties where you'd never hear from them again. They'd be, they become famous on one show and then you'd never hear from them again. You would, they would not have other opportunities to work that, that game has changed now. Not only can you be on a hit show and continue to have a long career, but also it used to be in the 60s, 70s, 80s, if you're on a TV show, they wouldn't even allow you anywhere near a movie camera. They wouldn't allow you in, in, in on the big screen. That changed completely. So it's a whole different world now. So, so I'm grateful for that. And, and, and all of that personally was, was started in my career because of the success of that show. But then it becomes about, okay, now how do you manage that? How do you navigate a career. How do you get longevity in this industry? And part of that navigation, because um, I've listened to you talk about this before, for you seemed to be that you wanted to be very intentional about the roles that you play. Because I, I don't know, like after LA Law, were, you, were people throwing parts of you playing a lawyer at you like left and right? Or, or was it still, as you mentioned earlier, like in the 80s, you know, the 90s? I mean, it kind of went a long way where like typically a lot of black men were cast as more gangster type of roles. So, you know, did that open up broader thinking about the type of actor that you wanted to be? Come on, Jamel, with the word. My favorite word is intentional. You know, my favorite action is intentional because things don't just happen. You know, it always amazes me. You hear people talk about success, especially in show business. Well, I never thought this was going to happen. Well, you probably thought at some point it was going to happen because you went for it. And then even if you get like one break to have a career, you kind of have to build that. And, and what one usually has to do is be intentional about how you build that. You know, for me, you know, when I was a kid, the actor I watched more than anything that, that inspired me was Sidney Poitier. So what he represented in terms of dignity and in terms of strength and in terms of internal fortitude, all of that grace, all of that is what, and my dad was very much and, and, and embodied all, and still does, he's 91 years old, embodies all of those characteristics. And that was the kind of actor that I, I aspired to be. Um, so I was intentional about playing those kind of roles where, where, you know, they can be upstanding and, and, uh, people call it the noble Negroes, but, uh, but that, but you know, that was really the first 10 years of my career. And then Posse was the first time I got to play a bad guy, you know, playing Carver, the sheriff, uh, who was, who was an asshole. And I kind of liked that. I said, Oh, I like this guy kind of thing. And then the other roles came where, you know, the biggest one that was a game changer in my career was Just Cause, where I played a serial killing pedophile, Sean Connery, Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. 
one of the greatest plot twists in in any mystery thriller movie I've ever seen was was in that movie. Yeah. Oh man, thank you. But you know that that really changed the whole trajectory of my career because prior to that I played a lot of you know oversimplified good guys. You know what you see is what you get. He looks like a good guy. You know, but really it was Carver initially, Posse, and then Just Cause that allowed me to play, which had become somewhat of a pattern. Someone you think is one thing, but there's always much more behind his actions and his eyes. So just because you somebody looks a certain way, you can't trust that you think he's going to be warm and fuzzy and nice guy. Those kind of characteristics have been a lot of fun to play throughout the years. But to me, it's really about mixing it up. You know, my, my daughter's 23 now. She says, you know, all my generation thinks all you play are bad guys. <laughs> so, well, that's cute because they don't know the whole body of work, but, uh, but, I, but I enjoy it. He was like, why are you always playing bad guys? I said, because I love it. And you didn't even bring up Carlos Armstrong. <laughs> oh, that's right. We ain't even got to that. That's right. Carlos and Matias. Oh, my God. Years. You didn't even get to that one. That was the one that I was like, I choked the life out of this motherfucker. If I see him like this, like, that was the one. Got hot grits thrown on you and everything. You deserved it. Hot grits and no. Yeah, yeah. No, I deserved yeah, it. Yeah, no, you deserved deserve it. it. Now, um, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up Just Cause, as I said, like, one of the great plot twists. So tell me how that came about, because that was, I'm with you. Like, I think to that point, people saw you as like good dude romantic lead type of dude and in that one you just a straight monster so <laughs> how did this materialize you know the the beauty in that is that as, as successful and as popular as la law was at the time uh the director arnie glimpshire had never seen it so he didn't know me from adam which was great that was man and and that came at the very end the final season the show was on eight years i did the last seven and the show was coming to an end i didn't know what the next next move was going to be and i heard about this incredible role of this guy you think is innocent but turns out to be the actual killer and um and the fact that it was a warner brothers big studio film i could sit sean connery lawrence fishburne ed harris um scarlett johansson at 10 years old i knew that could be a game changer if i got the role so i remember being just very nervous um auditioning for the role and i remember being in the courtroom shooting a scene on la law when i got the call from my my manager at the time helen sugland to say i got i got the part but I kind of wrestled with that because I knew I wanted to play it. But just what we were just talking about, wanting and needing that balance, because always avoiding being pigeonholed from the very beginning. You know, just I always love biographies and watching people's trajectory. That's why I love listening to your podcast and, um, and knowing your history and, you know, doing my homework about you and uh, Uphill and you know, Detroit, which we'll talk about that, too, hopefully. Uh, but all, all that I'm fascinated by human beings, but also their trajectory in life. How do people get to a certain point, especially of success? So I, so I watched that, I, but I knew when Just Cause was offered to me, the character was kind of pretty deep uh, in terms of, you know, the, the things he did, the things he was accused of, things he actually did. And I, I remember having a conversation with Sidney Poitier about playing this role and if I should. And, and, uh, and, and briefly, he just said, listen, you know, when he came along, he didn't have the luxury of having the chance to play different roles. He had to play that noble Negro all the time. And he said, this is a time, this is 1994, when there are a lot of you actors out there that are playing different roles. And I, I look at that and now there's, it's like tenfold, the amount of black actors that are able to work today. He said, but there has to be a time, there has to come a time when we should be able to have the privilege and the right to play good guys, bad guys, and everything in between. So, uh, so then of course, then he said, and you play that role and you play it well. And 
that's all I needed. I was I was off the whole off the races at that point. Now I assume that the character was written to be a black man. I assume because of the racial dynamic that was that was in the film. Oh yeah, and you know part of it for me the fact that Lawrence Fishburne was in the movie. You know we had those two representations of the black male image. You know he was the guy you thought was the asshole cop who was out to get me, the bad guy quote unquote. And I was the good guy who was accused of this, wrongfully accused of this terrible crime. And then, of course, the whole thing, to your point, plot twist, everything flipped. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking the whole time. I remember when I first saw it, I was thinking the whole time. I was like, Lawrence Fishburne probably did this shit. It was probably him. (laughs) Like, (laughs) he framed this man. I'm like ready to, you know what I'm saying? I'm like ready to pick it on your behalf. I'm like, what? You gotta (laughs) be. I was like, you gotta be kidding. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, free Bobby Earl. And then it was like, oh no, keep his ass locked up. He crazy. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it flipped real fast. Um, All right, Blair, I have so much more that I want to get to you about, especially like your father's military background and you growing up all over the place, including my home state, Michigan, right? You spent some time there. Yep. That's right. Yes. Okay. So we'll we'll get into Michigan and maybe some Detroit talk then. But for now, we're just going to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more with Blair Underwood. Blair Underwood discussing his starring role on L.A. Law brought back a particular memory for me. And I got a story to tell about how that drama series played a integral role in my development as a writer. I discussed this in more detail in my memoir, Uphill, which, by the way, still available wherever books are sold. You can also order it on Amazon and at Barnes and Nobles. Uh, But if you can, I would suggest that you order from a black bookstore if possible. Anyway, writing played a significant role in my life, and I believe writing is what prevented me from following a darker path. I journaled to help me deal with my mother's drug addiction and my father not being in my life as consistently as he should have been. But on top of journaling, I also often created fictional stories to not only explore my own imagination, but build worlds I wish I were in or worlds that reflected people who looked like me. One of these worlds I created was actually patterned after what I saw on L.A. Law. Now, for some of you listening, L.A. Law might have been before your time. So let me explain how big this show was during its heyday. The show attracted 14 million viewers per episode. To understand just how ridiculous that is, the final season of Secession that recently aired drew a series high 2.9 million viewers per episode. The Game of Thrones series finale brought in 39 million people. So their series finale was just shy of regular L.A. Law numbers. L.A. Law also won 15 Emmys, including four for Best Television Drama. So basically, L.A. Law was the shit. L.A. Law, though, also had me thinking about a career as a corporate attorney, even though I had zero idea what corporate lawyers actually did. But instead of looking at all of the top law schools, I chose to write my own L.A. Law spinoff. But instead of there only being one black main character, as Blair Underwood was, in my spinoff, I made everybody black because that's what my real world looked like. Not black people as lawyers necessarily, but because I was living in Detroit, my world was black everywhere. Black male men, black male women, black teachers, black mayor, black working class, black middle class, blackly black, black, black. Writing that spinoff as a kid did wonders for me as a developing writer, even though I'm sure what I wrote was probably terrible. But it taught me how to tap into my imagination and it made me feel like a real writer. 
even though when I watch L.A. Law, I couldn't always understand some of the fictional adult dynamics and situations. But I also realized by writing that spinoff, the power of writing and how to create impact, even though this is a fictional drama series. I also learned something else that was very key. Real storytelling can come in many, many forms. And now back to more with Blair Underwood. So before the break, you were mentioning Sydney Poitier. And I believe that I read, and hopefully this is true, that you first met him because you guys had a very memorable encounter on a flight. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's right. That was my first week of L.A. Law. I was in New York promoting L.A. Law, and I was uh, exhausted, having done press for like four days straight. And I'm coming back on Eastern Airlines, which is no longer. And it's the, it's the first class row, and I'm looking for my seat. I'm looking to the right, looking to the left, look to the left. And I see this empty seat next to this man who's got these long legs. He's stretched out, and he's sleeping. I don't know what I, Jamel, I'm, I, I don't know if I gasped. I said, what the hell? Whatever I did, he woke up, and it was Sidney Poitier. <laughs> And my seat was right next to him for five hours. I said, this man is going to be trapped for five hours. I'm going to (laughs) just pick his brain, ask him all kinds of questions. I said, now, let me be cool. Let me be cool. And because I had five hours. But literally, because I left college at Carnegie Mellon. And I, you know, I think it had been two and a half years. And they said, you know what? I had a year and a half left. I left in the middle of my junior year. And they said, you know what? If you can, you can finish your degree and get your degree at Carnegie Mellon, but you got to write a final thesis on what you've learned while you've been out in the business. So it had been almost three years. So I was going to spend those five hours writing my paper, my final thesis. I was going to do that anyway. As it turned out, that thesis became the conversation I had with Sidney Poitier for two hours. I gave him three hours. I said, I'm going to let him sleep. I'm not going to sweat him. And I said, he can't go nowhere. So I'll I'll wait till I wake up. So I took a nap and then woke up. And then um, we had the most amazing conversation, the most amazing conversation about life. And at that time, because I was, I was, 2023, I was on LA Law, I'm a kid. Everybody's hitting me on the number one show on te- drama on television. You should be doing press. You should be doing this. And I, I, I remember I was just being stressed out about it. And I said, what do you think about that? And he said, he said, you know what? When he did this movie called The Defiant Ones with Tony Curtis, everybody was telling him, you know, you know, in Hollywood, as you know, Jamel, if your name is above the title, that means you're, you're of more value, a bigger star than the actual film itself. Usually you have a, a, a title and then people are below the, the title. But Tony Curtis's name was above the title. Sidney Poitier's was below the title. Everybody said, your name should be above the title. You know, you're a biggest star too and you're coming, you know, whatever. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to focus on the work. Just focus on the work. And, and he did. And then it was Tony Curtis who was like the Tom Cruise of that day. He's one that came around and said, at the end, he said, this man deserves to be side by side, my name above the title with him. And he made the move. But the moral of the story was just focus on the work. And in this world today, especially more than back then, there's so many distractions. There's so many ways to become famous, to seek out fame and attention and notoriety. And I remember then, I took it to heart then, and I believe it now, just do the work and the rest will come. That's an old school way of thinking. Because I'm, I'm someone who I don't, I don't enjoy talking about my private life. I don't put it out there that much. Every once in a while, I'll put it out there. You know, if I have major changes in, the, in my life, I'll put it out there. But, but normally, I don't. And that's, and that's part of the reason. It's a very old school way of thinking. I mean, back the, the actors and movie stars of the, the 50s and 60s and 70s didn't even do interviews for that reason. And part of it is, too, when that audience comes to see you on screen as an actor, you want to have at least some modicum of, of mystique where they don't know everything about you. 
where they're bored by you because they know everything about you. But it kind of started, it really crystallized my mind in that conversation with Mr. Poitier about just focus on the work and the rest will take care of itself. That is a unique mindset in today's landscape because sometimes, especially with maybe even certain roles that people get or, or opportunities is now based off their social media following. That's, a, that's at least a component, right? Component to it. No, you're right. Not necessarily how well or, or they can act or, or, or other things. And I, I have to say, I do miss the mystery. Like there are just some people I'm like, I don't need to know that much about you. I really don't. Like, <laughs> it's just too much. Yeah, it's too much. Yeah, man. I know too much. I like, like I, I don't need to know all that. I don't need to know all that. I like you just better, just this little container, little box. You pop up, you got something to promote, then you go back, and it's like, all right. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why Sade is one of my favorite artists of all time. It's like, I don't know if this woman, 30, 40, 50, 60, I have no idea how old she is. I don't know where she lives. She unearths herself every 15 years with some new music, hopefully, and then that's it. And she go back to wherever it is she came. She float into a room and she float right back on that. I'm like, I don't know if she exists right. or not. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's a beautiful yeah. thing. Nah. And you know who mastered that back in the day was, of course, Michael Jackson and Prince. And, and, and that was a huge part of their brand is being enigmatic, having mystique. Since we were discussing in the first half of this podcast about your intentionality, um, that leads me to certainly another um, situation that you've talked about, and that's about Sex in the City, right? I was a big Sex in the City fan, and I was so heartbroken they didn't keep you and Miranda together. I was like, this is who she needs, you know? He came in, You know what I'm saying? I was like, he all smooth. He got a good job. Like, he ain't working nights like that. Like, come on. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it was just... Oh, they played you, Blair. They played you, but that's okay. Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, though, um, I, I read where you discussed, like, that was not the first time the Sex in the City actually came to you. They wanted you earlier in the series to be a conquest of Kim Cattrall's. And why don't you tell the story about why you turned that opportunity down? Well, there you go. You're right. Intentionality again. So where do I want to go? How do I want to get there? How do I want to be seen? You know, this... Everything about show business and, of course, being an actor, so much of it is tied to what you look like. I mean, all we have as a doctor, that's one thing. As a lawyer, it's another thing. But as an actor, you have your physical being. You have your face, your visage, your, your body. That's part of your brand. So people get bored of seeing it or if they've pegged you one certain thing, that's all you become. So I say that to say I, I never wanted to be seen through the prism and limitations of mostly white people that make these decisions in Hollywood as a black actor. I am a black actor. I know that. But how I perceive my blackness and my humanity are different than they could ever perceive my blackness and humanity. If you look at it through them, those people at that, that time, especially writing, um, it's very limited. So specifically, the first time uh, Sex and the City um, approached me, they wanted me to, to play that character who was a conquest of, of Kim Cattrall's character. Um, and it was all about the curiosity factor of what's it like to be with a black man, are the, are the rumors true, and this, that, and the third. And, you know, hey, God bless him. You know, it was a hit show, and I said, I'm, I'm honored, because I never take that lightly, that you would even consider me. But that's not something I want to do, where uh, I want to go. So it was, I think, two years later when they came back around, and my first question was, well, am I going to be the black guy? On the show, or am I going to be a man with humanity who happens to be black 
am proud of that. And they said, no, no, we're not even going to mention, because then it then became, how do we uh, approach that? And I said, well, best thing, stay away from it. Let me just be a man where it's not about my blackness, because that's limiting through your eyes. So they did. So they said, no, no. I, and I think I did five, I only did five episodes, but I think it was mentioned only once that the character was black. I mean, it's obvious I'm black. You don't have to talk about it. Let's just, let's get beyond that. And so let's, let's move to something else. You know, we're in a different place in the world in this industry now where, you know, it's not only in vogue, but I think it's important now in the right context to discuss all of these nuances of race and race relations and, and uh, the pros and cons, and the ups and downs and the ins and outs of all of that. But uh, if I'm dealing with the limitations of a writer or an executive producer who doesn't really know that world, uh, back then in the 80s and the early 90s, I would say, let's, let's take that off the table. So there were many times when that, that came about in my career that I'm that I'm grateful for. And I think that being intentional in, in, in choosing those roles and crafting those roles in a certain way, not allowing the limitations to be put upon you, I think was a, was a benefit. Honestly, that's really dope to hear that you had the fortitude to do that because look, as an actor, keyword is working, have to be working. It's a hit show for a lot of people. That would have been a huge opportunity to be able to be a part of this, even though the, I'm wondering, and I don't know if you've thought about it this way. Do you think part of what made them intrigued about coming back to you is because you said no? I do think that, as a matter of fact. You know, listen, people want what they can't have, right? And one of my favorite things to do in this business is negotiate. I love negotiating a contract. Because I'm not afraid. The thing is, the best, best position to be in is never be afraid to walk away. But I'm not talking about walking away when, you, when it's easy to walk away. I'm talking about, like, earlier in your career especially earlier in your career, when you can't really walk away and, 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 and you don't really have the tangible finances necessarily or the opportunities where you know what the next move is going to be. That's when it's hard. But that to me is a faith walk. I think if you want to be in this business and be in show business, it's all a faith walk because nothing is promised or guaranteed. So, um, no, I actually quite enjoyed then and still do to say, you know, always respectful, grateful. Thank you. But um, no, that's OK. But you're right. I think people want what they can't have. I think that's part of human nature. Honestly, you I think it extended your character's you know, life on the show, because as just her conquest, like you in and out, like, you know, no pun intended. Like, it's like yeah, I, that was one episode. I, I know I'm a child. I'm sorry. But it did it, baby. OK, unintended. you know, it was a revolving door around her conquest. That was the whole point of it. But now they had to actually put some thought into a character and create a relationship. Exactly. And what that might actually, you know, look like. So in a way you force them outside of their, what I consider to be a little bit of a lazy thinking. I mean, it might've been a different group, but at that point in the conversation, you know, when it came to sex, like, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it was like, is that really a storyline? Like being curious? You know, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just seemed like low hanging fruit. That's all I got to say. Is this, right, exactly. That very much seemed like that. You know, I, I, I love asking actors this question. Is there a role that you didn't get that you still think about? I think about it because you brought it up. But there's one role that I didn't get that I really wanted. And it's really only one in all these years. And it was Dreamgirls. It was the Jamie Foxx role. Oh, wow. And that was one. It was, oh, man. It was like in my fingertips. But it wasn't to be. I mean, Jamie's a great singer. And Jamie had just won the Academy Award. And I, I got number love. I, I, Jamie's the, the man. Um, but that was definitely one that I, that I wanted badly. I mean, the other one that I didn't get. I mean, Just Cause was another one. I, a lot of LA Law that I wanted badly. But it, it happened. But that was the one that, that got away. And the, the irony was, you know, 10 years prior to that, 
And this is what I think made it so hard. Ten years prior to that, they were doing Dreamgirls with Whitney Houston. Mm. Whitney Houston was going to play the Beyonce role. Don Cheadle was going to play the Eddie Murphy role. And uh, Joel Schumacher was directing it. And he offered me the role of the manager that Jamie ended up playing. So it was funny because I was doing a little thing in New York at the time. Uh, it was a pearly rendition for the New York City Center. And Anika Nani Rose, who ended up being in it, who's phenomenal. Um, but it was ironic. I don't know if I even talked to her about this. But my, man, my, my agent had got the director of the new Dreamgirls to come see the production. Now, I'm not a singer. I can hold a tune. I am not a singer. Anika is a hell of a singer. So I remember we were backstage and Anika heard that the director that they're doing dream girls in, in Hollywood and, you know, let's, let's see what kind of what see what they do with it. And I don't even know if she knew the director was out there. But the funny thing was she ended up getting the role being in the movie. And I ended up not getting, getting the role as it turned out. But uh, but yeah, that was that was one of the ones that kind of hurt when it, it didn't happen because it had been in my hand 10 years prior. And this opportunity came. And, and then there was another there was another turnaround on that because, again, Jamie Foxx had just won the Academy Award, but he was having some contractual issues because of the soundtrack. He had a record deal with somebody else. The soundtrack was with another company. And the director said, if the contract doesn't work out, the role is yours. I was like, oh, right at my fingertips. Twice it slipped out of my hand. But, uh, but it's cool. You know, you, you learn that it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. Sally was talking about this in her podcast with you. But same thing. If it's, if it's meant for you, it's going to happen. It's not meant for you. It's not yours. Keep it moving. Keep it pushing. And you learn that really early on in this business or you just end up being miserable. I mean, I think that's remarkable. But the interesting thing is, like, sometimes I ask actors that question and I'll be thinking to myself, like, eh, I can't really see you you playing that role. Like, um, but like I, like Lawrence Fishburne said, one of the roles he turned down was Sam Jackson's role in, I believe it was Pulp Fiction. And I was like, "Woo, I could definitely see you playing that. I mean, Sam was dynamite in that I actually fish killing it too with this role with dream girls i was like i could easily see you playing that like so oh, man. yeah that would have been that would have been perfect <laughs> i don't have the voice that jamie fox has but y'all we can loop it i'll just move my lips i'll lift it right i was about to say you know technology now i feel like they could have got it together that's it it's so i i i'm, I'm really curious because you seem so much and come off and it, i think your career illustrates this like you are an acting lifer but was there ever a time where you felt like you experienced a low point in, in your career? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. You know, highs and lows. 2008, I was doing, I was in three series at once. A couple of days, I remember I was shooting at Paramount, Dirty Sexy Money in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I'd go over the hill into the valley, go to Burbank and, and shoot uh, uh, New Adventures of Old Christine. So that was 2008. And then all three of those projects, the other one was in treatment on HBO, in treatment. 2009, I didn't work the whole year. And that's one of those things where you felt like, you know, people get tired of seeing you. I mean, I was, I was everywhere doing all kinds of press on these three different shows. And like, people get tired of seeing you. Sometimes you just got to go away because all you have is your face and your body and your talent. So that happened twice in my career. 2009, I just, um, that was tough because that was not self-imposed. That was, that was tough mentally, I think emotionally, financially, uh, especially when you're everywhere the year before and nowhere the next year. The next time it happened was 2013. I was doing Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway and Bob Greenblatt, the head of uh, uh, NBC, had come to see it and he came backstage and said, I want to do a show for you. Long story short, we ended up doing, I did a year contract of a production deal with NBC and ended up doing uh, uh, Ironside. So you never know how it's going to, how it's going to pan out. We did Ironside, we did nine episodes, they aired three of them and canceled it. And, you know, 
was part of the deals. You know, to me, it was a success in the sense that it was an idea, and then you do this deal with NBC, and then nothing's promised out of that. I had pitched them project. They shut, shot them down. They pitched me stuff to me. I shot it down. The last thing, like the last two weeks, was Ironside. I said, yeah, I'll do it. But it didn't work. So I told my agent, like, this was 2013. And all of 2014, I said, I'm just going to take a year off. That one hurt because that was self-imposed. I said, I don't want to see a camera for a year. That could be scary, but it's a faith walk. And I just felt like I was going to take that faith walk and be unbothered. Come on now. And say and see and see where the chips where they fall, and took the whole year off. I ended up doing, and, I, and also I wanted to, from a creative standpoint, be reminded of why I do what I do, why why I love acting, not the business, not the industry, but the work and the craft. And I ended up going to Israel, like in March or something like that of that year. Went to the 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 the, the, the Holy Land. And right before, like a day before I got on the plane, uh, I was offered to do Othello at the uh, Old Globe Theater in San Diego. It terrified me. It's one of Shakespeare's greatest roles. And I said, I said, listen, man, to my agent, I said, I'm literally going to the Holy Land tomorrow for two weeks. Let me go pray on this. Can you give me two weeks? And I did. And I just kept hearing, once I was there, I kept hearing myself on something in, in, um, in uh, Israel. I kept hearing myself tell my kids, do the things that scare you. Don't run away from them because it was intimidating to play Othello. So I said, yes, turns out, long story short, Jamel, it was one of the greatest opportunities and experiences of my professional life to have played Othello. It was a success financially, but also creatively. It, it challenged me in ways I'd never been challenged before. So that year of 2014, I did that same year, I did Othello. I ended up doing a trip to Bountiful with Cicely Tyson and Vanessa Williams, took that on tour. And literally the last month of 2014, I ended up got an offer to do Marvel's Agents of Chill. I have to tell you, it was good to get back on a set then, but I really haven't done those two plays and done some personal internal work. I just needed to have time away. Because listen, this industry can um, chew you up and spit you out if you let it. And it can mess with your head if you let it. And that's one of the reasons also that I got into directing, producing. I can hire other people that I think are talented and hire myself if I want to. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Rig the game in your favor. That's what that's what you, that's what that's you right. gotta do. <laughs> now, um, now I'm wondering when you took that year off and and sort of shifted uh, a little bit and 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 kind of you know refocused. Did you give any thought during that year that maybe you didn't want to act anymore? No, no, not even the half a thought. Because no, I love it too much, and I just I knew I was gonna. I knew I wouldn't want to come back to it. I didn't know necessarily that that the industry would have uh, opportunities when I came back. I just I felt. I felt it was there. I just didn't worry about it. I mean, I really, that's, that's the faith wall. So how does a military kid, because your father, um, when he retired, he was, what, a step below general. He retired as a colonel, correct? Old bird colonel. Yeah. So how does a military kid who bounced across this country, living in different places, what, Washington, I think Michigan was one. Um, I forget the others. How do you get into acting? How did you know acting, this is what I really want to do? I didn't want to grow up. I just love playing. <laughs> I just wanted to play a character my whole life. You know, do some storytelling. How it happened initially was I was doing plays in Petersburg, Virginia at um, Marie Manning was my teacher in high school, but she also owned her own theater, Playmaker Fellows, downtown Petersburg. I started there initially, started doing plays in school first, and then started doing plays at her theater, Playmaker Fellows, and then um, a nearby theater in Colonial Heights called the Swift Creek Mill Playhouse at the time. So it was a dinner theater. So I'd go to school in the daytime, and I'd, at night, the first play I did was with my sister, my little sister, Marlo, 
Finning the Rainbow. So I go to school in the daytime and then drive to the theater, do a play at night and come back and go back to school the next day. But that was my, my, really, my real entree into theater. I mean, just really getting a chance to be on stage. And I just, I fell in love with it. I mean, to this day, live theater is my favorite thing to do. I, mean, I love movies because they last forever because you do the work on that set, it's going to last forever. But, and, and the, the work you do on stage is kind of like riding, riding in the sand when the shore comes along. It's just, it goes away, but you recreate it again night after night after night. So I love that. So that, those early uh, opportunities in, in, in the theater was my entree. And I just knew from then on, I was, I was, I was on lock. And I used to have my life for now. Because of storytelling, I heard you say that about yourself, being a storyteller. Yeah, no, because that's the fun part. Um, you know, I became like you with acting is like I only wanted to do journalism. Like I'm not good at anything else. Like this is literally it. I can't add. I appreciate science. I ain't want. I don't want shit to do with science. Okay, like nothing. <laughs> right. Hey, you and me both. Two quick questions I want to ask you before we get to what I call. And here's a tease, the most controversial part of the interview. <laughs> um, uh, one question uh, I want to ask you about two upcoming projects or one I hope is still a project and one I know is going to be a project. You uh, are going to have some involvement in a uh, cast, right, with the Isabel Wilkerson's amazing book that, you know, is now being developed for the screen. I'm so excited about this. I love this book. I love all of her work. She's one of the most brilliant journalists in history. What can you tell me about the project? What little details can you can you give me? What I can tell you is that it's directed by Ava DuVernay. Who's amazing. It is written by the phenomenal, brilliant Ava DuVernay. So it's written by her. She's directing it. I remember like a few years ago, she had said, uh, you know, she was Got the rights to the book by Isabel Wilkerson, as you said, and she's trying to kind of just craft the narrative. Like, you know, she knew she wanted to tell this movie, but she ended up telling the story through the eyes of Isabel's character. And the, the, the amazing Anjanou Ellis plays Isabel Wilkerson in the movie. But it's really about those who are not familiar with it. It's, it is called Cast, the book, subtitle, Origins of Our Discontent. So the movie is called Origins. And you take this path through... Anjanou Ellis's character, Isabel Wilkerson, and how she comes to really dismantle and analyze and learn about the caste systems in India, uh, Nazi Germany, just like in the book, and of course in America. So the movie they shot in, in, in Berlin, Germany, they shot in, in India. I didn't go to any of those places. I just I went to Savannah, Georgia, which was cool. You know, I, <laughs> I love that. And for me, it's just a cameo. You know, um, Ava's one of my dearest friends in this industry. We've known each other like 25 years. And, you know, if she calls, I'm like, hey, if I can, if I can do it, I'm there. Uh, the last night she called and I couldn't do it, I was doing Othello. And I had these long dreadlocks going down my back. I said, and she was doing Selma. I said, hey, I can't take these dreadlocks out and come on down there. But, uh, but no, this, this came about and I said, listen, whatever it is, I'm down. But it's a nice little, nice little role because I play this character at the New York Times-ish editor who is the editor of Isabel's character, Anjanou's character, and he's trying to convince her just, you know, have conversations about uh, exploring dynamics and race relations and current uh, stories in the, in the news at that time. You know, it's, it's funny that that's being made because between that book and Warmth of Other Sons, her other book, which is phenomenal, I would have thought Warmth of Other Sons would have been the one being made into a movie because that, to me, is one of the best books explaining the racial dynamics in America through migration patterns that I've ever read. Like it, mm -hmm. it breaks down race in a diff in, in such a clear, very thoughtful, 
you know, way that gets you to critically think. And I was like, man, because of the personal stories in that one, I, I would have thought that it might have been worth of other sons. So I was elated when I saw that cast was actually becoming a movie. It's a tricky nut to crack, but I know Ava did it because you know I think Warmth of Other Sons is much more cinematic initially, but the w- the way to do it is through the emotionality of that character as she, Anjanu's character, Isabel's character, as she's learning about this this the, this hierarchy, this power structure of race and privilege. I.E. Cass, right. And uh, I remember after I read, her, I read her book, I put on Twitter, I was like, mm, these similarities between how the you know, the Nazis built their regime in Germany to some of the things that we're seeing in America as like, it's real similar. Ooh, and how the Nazis learned from Jim Crow in America. From they learned from Jim Crow. Yeah. Especially when it came to um, interracial marriages and dating, like they picked that up from us. And so that's right. I encourage everybody who's listening to please read that book. Okay. The other project I want to ask you about what's up on the LA law sequel. Ooh, okay. So listen, we did the pilot. Was directed by Anthony Hemingway. Uh, I thought it was dope as hell. ABC decided not to pick it up, so that's no longer happening. Okay, at all? Like it can't be revived somewhere else? Nah, oh. nah. You know what? They they tried to I think tried to sell it around town and whatever reason. You know, you listen that that story, the story we told, the many different stories. And LA Law always pushed the envelope, right? Uh, it was all it all emerged out of the summer of 2020, right after George Floyd. So we were really pushing the envelope. I mean, we had storylines, a whole major storyline about reparations. And we had a trans character in the show. And I think, you know, as, as much as in 2020, everybody was like, yeah, let's, 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 you know, black lives do matter. Let's see what we can do. Uh, folks not really trying to hear about reparations. And there was an ongoing story. And my character, Jonathan, was going to take that, that case all the way to the Supreme Court. So uh, I think, honestly, if we're going to be real frank, I think that was part of the reason people said, no, do we, I don't think we want to see all that. You know, and there's some other things. We're pushing the envelope, as L.A. Law always did. But see, pushing the envelope in the 80s and 90s is a different thing than pushing it now because we have come so far as a society and now pushing the boundaries. And now people kind of like, I think people are starting to push back now in terms of how much we want to see about whatever it may be, anything that makes them uncomfortable. Which is wild because obviously you would think just by the dynamics of society that TV in the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s that would be restricted. But it was the opposite. Like recently, I've been binge watching Golden Girls. Yo, Golden Girls was on some shit. Oh, really? Right? Like they was on some <laughs> shit, man. Like they are, I mean, I'm like, this could not be made today. Like it's, it's, it's. Now, what took you, no, you're right about that. Yeah. In all those Norman Lear things, uh, All in the Family, the Jeffersons, stuff they talked about. What drove you to the Golden Girls? I love that. I, I love the Golden Girls in general, but I'd never really, you know, I hadn't watched it as a complete series. Uh, I've caught it, you know, in, in little pockets here and there as it, as it's a syndication. But I was like, mm, I wonder what this is like watching this from the very beginning. And it was it was really very eye opening. One, I don't know if people would cast three older women to carry a sitcom. That's number one. So we can start with there. But, you know, I mean, I think in the, in the series, like Blanche has a gay brother and they do a whole thing on that. I mean, they touch on so many serious issues. And even the dialogue, I was like, damn, Golden Girls was lit. Like, I was just like I'm, <laughs> I've been literally watching this like every night. And little did I know, you know, a fun fact everybody can repeat at parties. I didn't know that they did a spinoff after that with Don Cheadle. And it was Rue McClanahan. Oh, no, I never knew that. I had no idea. It's called The Golden Palace. Promise. It's on Hulu right now. And you'll be like, Google that. Don Cheadle? Like, <laughs> yes. 
Yes, it's called the Golden Palace. And it's all of the women except for Dorothy. And they run in this hotel in Miami now. Like it's what's Don playing? Don is playing like one of the workers at at the hotel. And, you know, they're all friends. And it's like this little hotel family. I was like, I did not even remember this. But yo, I'm going I'm to Google that. I need to I'm see that. I'm telling you, if you got Hulu, Golden Palace. Watch it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on there right now. But let me tell you what you got to see. What you got to see is the next show I got coming out called three women three women yes Th- that was actually i'm glad you reminded me that was on my list because you you're playing a chef it's three women i play the husband of a character named sloan played by dewanda wise and these characters are swingers basically you know they have a fluid life and you know dewanda that character is like in her 30s i'm not oh. and so she's a much much younger wife and she really is she wants to push all the boundaries of her sexuality she's very free with it she's open with it he adores her to life so he wants to make her happy so he's got one rule you can sleep with her with whoever you want to but first of all i gotta be there and i gotta watch you don't go outside the parameters of what we've already discussed or that i know of now you know that can't be sustainable <laughs> no so so it's gonna be some mess there's gonna be some pit <laughs> there's some mess there's some mess <laughs> it's gonna be some mess but definitely check it out it's it'll be out on stars in 2023 we don't know yet when it's gonna be released but it's 10 episodes i did five to 10 episodes but it's uh but it's 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 great. I saw ten episodes uh, recently, but uh, real real happy with it. Oh, and another show that you were on um, that was my shit was Your Honor. I had never experienced that much. Like my blood pressure was through the roof. Like <laughs> I was so glad they decided to do a second season. I was like, come on, y'all, y'all can't do me like this. Yeah, no, I was a good show. I didn't do much on that. I shot one stuff. And they ended up uh, not continuing the character because the the producer who brought me on ended up leaving the show. Mm. So, but yeah, but what I did, I had, I had my plus. I love New Orleans, so. You know, yeah, that's a that's an easy sell. Yeah, yeah. All right, Blair. Before I get you out of here, as I mentioned, there was controversy coming. There's a game I play with every guest who appears on the podcast. You know this because you've listened, yeah. so you know now it's your turn in the blender. Right, right, right. The game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this, or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this, or you can get with that. I give you two choices, and you gotta pick one. I gotta pick one. You gotta pick one. All right, I can't. I can't bow out. Okay, all right. You cannot bow out. All right, sweet or savory? Sweet. Sweet or savory? Now, savory can be sweet. We're not going to get too deep with it. All right, I'll say sweet. See, see, now I feel like <laughs> you're going to say sweet. I say, like, don't be trying to pollute the game. Trying to find a nuance. Smoother with the ladies. Jonathan Rollins or my man Keith from Set It Off? <laughs> Keith. Yeah, no, definitely Keith. You know, if there was ever a movie that I think it was great when it came out, I loved it. But I always thought like, man, I'm shocked that somebody hasn't tried to reboot Set It Off. Yeah. I remember at the time I was trying to do like a spinoff with uh, with Jada at the time. because I mean, They're like the two, two only survivors. Yeah. Everybody else did. <laughs> That's why I said it had to be a reboot. <laughs> so look, he knows all the inner workings of the bank. You know, she's on the outside. Oh, like a Bonnie and Clyde like Bonnie type of... Bonnie and Clyde. That's, what's, that's exactly what it was. Bonnie and Clyde. Ooh, okay. As a as a series or as a movie? No, no I, I want to do it like a sequel. A movie. Ooh, a sequel. All right. Okay. It may not be too late. I don't know. I was like, it might not be. There's a lot of reverence for that movie. And I, I think... You know what? I think what they've done to Bel Air, the the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, I think that has got people, you know, because some people when there's certain movies or or shows, they're like, don't touch that, don't touch that. But I think something like Bel Air got a lot of people to thinking, like, maybe, like, why not? Like, especially if you can reimagine it in a different way, like, why not do it? Yeah, I, but I think that's the key. It's got to be reimagined in the right way because sometimes things look like, looks like they're just kind of trying to make make a buck. 
you know, doing sequels for the sake of doing sequels, but something like Bel Air, I agree with you, was done in such a unique way to take a sitcom with a live audience, but go in a different direction, a single camera. So it's more like a movie. Well, smart. Yeah. And then to make it a drama where you're like, ooh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah that was that was definitely a, a, a refreshing take on it. All right. And finally, the more fun villain to play, Barbie Earl or Carlos Armstrong? Bobby Earl. <laughs> it's always Bobby, Bobby Earl. Earl. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, by far, because he was the craziest. The craziest, the better. That's true. I mean, I could, I mean, one was a murderer, so like, I can't really, <laughs> I mean, Carlos was an abuser, don't get me wrong, but like, murder kind of, you know, it's kind of a different level. Bobby took it to a whole nother level. That's a, that's a whole nother level. But even the character of uh, Carlos Armstrong, I mean, um, you know, as you said, like, it's funny, your daughter says, like, people only know you as, uh, you know, or her, maybe her generation, they know you as like playing the bad guy. Playing a character like Carlos Armstrong, like when that's presented to you, like is that something that you know, really appealed to you? The fact that this was not going to be a very well-liked person in this movie. It's like the, the most appealing to me. At that time, again, you know, paying attention to changing, shifting tides and, and timing. Now I'm not, now that's not as exciting to me to, to find a guy that's a, uh, uh, you know, an asshole or, or, or dark or a murderer. Um, if it's in the right project, yeah. But what's more interesting to me is to find a character like like three women. You know, this is a man who just, he loves his wife so much, he'll do anything for her, even watch her be with other people. Yeah, it was, it was definitely appealing at the time. If the right thing comes along, I'm all about it. But uh, it's not as exciting as it was before because then it was about breaking barriers. Then it was about changing minds because all anybody thought I could do was play the, the upstanding noble Negro in a suit and tie. Had to change the game. Had to flip it. You definitely flipped it, and is and you know what? I blame Variety because they undersold that plot line for three women because they were like, "Oh, it's a, a you know Blair Underwood is playing a chef whose wife cheats on him," and it was like, "Oh, I was like, oh wow, okay, that is a little different." I was like, "Oh, I didn't know they were swinging. I know all this was going on." <laughs> no, it's a whole nother boogie, and I tell you, whatever we did in this one, I've never done anything as risque as this. I mean, whatever we did in Sex and the City was child's play. Okay. There, ladies, there's a tease for you. I'm just saying. <laughs> there's just a saying. tease. Well, Blair, I appreciate you so much for spending this time. It's been a joy and a pleasure to speak with you. You know, you are consistently putting out excellence. So that you book busy, blessed, all those things. And so I'm really, really happy to have had this talk with you. Well, Jamel, thank you. And let me just say this to you, that I'm inspired by you. I'm a fan of yours. I love watching you do what you think. I love your outspokenness and just keep doing what you're doing. That's why I was, I, I wanted to jump at the chance and the opportunity to come do your, your podcast. So just keep handling your business. Yeah, I, I, I will try. All right, y'all. Blair's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. I recently saw a post on the shade room that stopped me dead in my tracks and fuck it. I am so bothered. The shade room often poses questions to their Instagram followers just to drum up conversations and they hashtag it TSR great debates. On this particular day, the debate question posed to their followers was from someone's Twitter feed. And the question was, y'all wear deodorant to bed? Whew, child. I was not ready for some of these responses. One Twitter user said, definitely not. Please let your skin breathe. Another Twitter user, nah, but I don't wake up musty. 
folks need to get their hormone levels checked. Another poster. If I'm sleeping alone, no. If I'm sleeping with a woman, yes. LOL. But this, friends, family, countrymen, and women, was the one. I haven't worn deodorant since 2020, and it's been the best thing for my vibration. Is the vibration musty? It seems like every few weeks, a hygiene debate breaks out on social media. Actually, let me correct myself. A hygiene debate that really shouldn't be a debate breaks out on social media. And all I can think is given how people are more than willing to put their nasty business in the street, it is truly shocking that we hadn't faced something like the coronavirus far sooner than we did. Here's a fun fact that you can repeat at parties. The average person sweats close to a cup of sweat per night. That, of course, doesn't mean everybody. And some people might even sweat more than that. But based off some of the comments, a lot of y'all out here disrespecting air. Madam C.J. Walker did not give us the tools to grease our scalps for y'all to be out here living musty. George Washington Carver did not develop more than 300 food, industrial and commercial products from peanuts for y'all to be out here thinking it's OK to sweat like Patrick Ewan without any sort of protection. It wasn't that long ago that my folks, our folks, had all those jokes when people from the mainstream community were admitting that they didn't wash their legs in the shower. We got our clown on because in that same community, many of them do not use washcloths. We can't be on the right side of history with the wrong kind of smell. I don't care if it's at night or if nobody in bed next to you. I'm going to need y'all to use some secret, some degree, some dove, some tussie, something. Ain't nothing cool about having an armpit scent that can make a skunk retreat. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven five and twenty one. Wave goodbye to forty five. Don't make me tell you fifty eleven times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live. It. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, it. you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.